Barukata, brothers and sisters. My name is Stephen Pigeon, and I have been asked today to come forward with my Torah testimony. And uh, this is something that uh, I've not only been called to by the brothers and sisters, but Yah himself has called me to set forth this testimony for such a time as this. So I wanted to take a few minutes to go through some things that brought me on the path that I'm on. You know, I think in all of these things, uh, Yah directs our path. It really is not up to us as to where we're going to go or how we get there or even when we get there. But rather, it is Yah himself that directs our path. And he puts things in front of us that sometimes are adversarial. And he puts things in front of us sometimes that are hills to climb. But sometimes they're hills we go down into valleys rich with uh, milk and honey. And Yah is our provider. And Yah has been my provider in every way. And so I guess I'm going to start from the, the time that uh, I tossed my hands up in despair because my plans had once again arrived at catastrophic failure. Well, I shouldn't say catastrophic failure, but they were bringing me to back to ground zero. I found myself in a circular cul-de-sac from which there was no ingress or egress. And it was at this time that I just tossed my hands up and I said, you know, Father, I'm not doing it anymore. It's all yours. I'm giving my life to you to direct as you see fit. Take me on the journey as you desire and let my heart's desires fade away in favor of your desires in my life. Well, yeah, I had something entirely different in mind for me that I had no idea. But he was really going to answer prayers that I had in my heart from the time I was 10 years old, not uh, based upon the decisions that I was required to make uh, when I was homeless at 15 and uh, you know various ways that I had to find to survive, but rather based upon what uh, the desires I had as a child, that he was going to satisfy those desires, that he was going to hear my prayers and begin to answer those one by one systematically. But he didn't answer those prayers uh, in a way that was just for the sake of answering the prayers, but rather he answered the prayers that he might structure me for later work. And so I was in a very difficult situation at the, at the time. I was basically a high school dropout and a college dropout and uh, selling used cars. And he took me from that and he said, you know, this is not who you're going to be. This is not who you are. And so he began to move me in a very serious way. And in just a very short period of time, I had uh, finished a double major degree in both criminal justice and in piano performance. And uh, then I went on to law school and secured a doctorate in a Juris Doctorate in law. And thereafter, I moved into uh, becoming a lawyer. Now, when I moved into becoming a lawyer, I really wanted to do just business law. And in fact, I wanted to do a basically what they call backroom law. In other words, I was going to be writing securities documents, things like a private placement memoranda, uh, option agreements, uh, warrants, uh, public placement uh, uh, documents. 
these kinds of things, contracts, management agreements. And uh, so I was doing these kinds of things, but it wasn't very long before uh, the clients uh, recognized that I had skills of presentation in front of large groups of people. And so as a consequence, my clients started screaming for me to be their lawyer uh, for purposes of trial. So I became a trial lawyer, that is uh, a lawyer who uh, spend, spends time in front of juries. And I did quite a bit of trial work. I won't say I did a lot of trial work, uh, but I did trial work where I appeared in front of, I did uh, several jury trials of substantial uh, weight. And in fact, I was the, the lead counsel in a jury trial uh, three months after I got out of uh, law school. So that was kind of unusual. There was a lot of money at stake and we did pretty well. And anyway, this was kind of the progress. But what I didn't understand at the time is that Yah wanted me to understand the tenets and the premises of the law. And even though they teach a distorted version of the law now, and they're, you know, they're incorrect in how they teach in the law schools, teaching that there is no common law, for instance, in the United States, that's a patent absurdity. Uh, but this is what they teach at the law school. And of course, I had the chance to look at law that I didn't know existed. We were required, for instance, to learn the Uniform Commercial Code and to withstand very strident testing uh, on a one-year-long class on the Uniform Commercial Code. I had, as part of my studies, almost two years in constitutional law, two years in the rules of evidence. I also had a lot of pre-law classes that other lawyers did not have. For instance, uh, I studied the history of the law uh, under a professor who was actually quite excellent, Steve Kahn. And uh, we also studied indigenous law, that is to say the law of the indigenous tribes in North America, which is a very significant thing to learn the body of law of other peoples and other people groups and what they think and believe. And Yah was beginning to do things in me at that time. He was beginning to show me things that I was going to have to learn that were going to be necessary for the things that he had planned for me later on, which I had no idea what they were. I mean, they weren't, they certainly weren't on my radar at all. Not at all, not at all, zero. And, uh, but my wife and I moved through a lot of these things. And then as time went on, uh, again, you know, I was selected, even though I thought I was a securities lawyer, I was selected again for, you know, high level securities trials. And uh, so we were doing jury trials again. And once we came into the 21st century, the, the, the whole paradigm changed and things changed really quite dramatically as, as the world uh, turned a corner, leaving behind uh, things American and allowing uh, the, the Holy Roman Empire in the form of the Third Reich hidden to take control of the United States, which is what happened with the election of, uh, well, actually it happened in 1988 with the election of George H.W. Bush, that the Third Reich began to move to control America and all of Western Europe. And uh, he proclaimed, George H.W. Bush proclaimed the New World Order on September 11th, 1991. And these things began to change the fabric of our society and they began to change me as well. 
Uh, but as we got into the 21st century, there were some things that were happening. I mean, in the late 90s, uh, I managed to get, I was always looking for a better and better Bible. Because believe it or not, the first Bible I ever owned was the Little Green Jehovah Witnesses Bible, which uh, has its own uniqueness and has its own character uh, in the private interpretation of the Jehovah Witnesses. And I was comparing that with the Bibles that I had picked up where the churches where we were attending, which were all Protestant denominational churches. In fact, we were in the Presbyterian church for a while. And uh, they were using the NIV. And I was looking at the NIV and comparing it. I was also reading the NKJV, which I thought was a better text than the NIV. And I picked up a big NIV study Bible and was reading that. But I, anyway, I kept looking and looking. I wasn't finding anything. And finally, I ordered an Oxford complete Bible, an Oxford edition. Well, I didn't know it, but the Oxford edition was actually the 1789 Benjamin Blaney version of the KJV. And so I'm looking at this book and all of a sudden I'm seeing the Apocrypha in there. Well, I mean, this was an, a highly accredited source, the Oxford Unabridged Bible. So I was reading through the Apocrypha and I read all these books and was absolutely fascinated, particularly when I read the book of 4th Ezra or 2nd Esdras. And 2nd Esdras to me was just really extremely exciting and a very beautiful book. Uh, I mean, I just, I love the book, you know. And so I began an inquiry into other writings. And of course, I stumbled on the book of Jubilees and Jubilees answered so many questions that I had in my mind. And so at this point, I began to build a green binder of texts that I really loved. And it included Fourth Ezra and it included Jubilees and it ultimately included Enoch. And so I was began to build, you know, what was a set of scriptures that was going to belong to me. But in the meantime, keep in mind that we're bouncing in and out of the Presbyterian church and into an evangelical church. So we ended up in an evangelical church uh, right after 9-11. And uh, when we did, they had this uh, missions week. And at missions week, uh, you know, basically you would go out in the foyer and they were encouraging worldwide mission outreach. Now at that time in the year 2000, the year 2001, uh, private giving from Americans exceeded all of the giving uh, into a missionary work of all the other nations on earth combined. Private giving from American believers exceeded all the other giving of every other nation combined. And so the evangelical push was really quite strident at that point. There was a big push on to go out and reach out and to promote the gospel worldwide. And of course, I, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a part of that, but I wasn't disheartened by it. I mean, in my prayer life, I had given to Yah the same thing that Isaiah said to Yah, here I am, send me, here I am, send me. And so I walked out into the foyer there and I'm looking around at all these things. I'm thinking, well, if I'm going on a mission, I'm going to Italy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it turns out I came around the corner and it was this mission stand uh, to go to Russia. Now you have to remember, I grew up here in Alaska where I currently am now. And uh, in Alaska, we are the end of Western civilization. 
when you go to the west of Alaska, you enter into Russian airspace. I mean, that's what happens. And in fact, at one point, uh, the farthest western point of Alaska is Little Diomede Island, and it faces a mile away the farthest eastern point of Russia, Big Diomede Island. So yes, you can see Russia from Alaska, from Little Diomede Island. And there's actually a great deal of Russian influence in the state of Alaska. There's Russian Orthodox churches, in fact, there's 53 Russian Orthodox churches in Alaska. And the Orthodox diocese is really quite strong here uh, with pretty heavy influence in Southeastern Alaska, namely out of Sitka, Ketchikan and so forth. Uh, in Haines, there are many Russian speakers there and many people who have actually lived in Russia who are Alaskans. Uh, the town of Sitka is dominated by a Russian Orthodox church in the very center of town. And this was the seat of Russian governorship over the state of Alaska under the hands of Alexander Baranov. And the Russians sold whatever interest they had in Alaska to the United States. And this was actually a transaction that was made um, following the Civil War. And it was essentially a gift, if you will, that uh, William Seward bought what was considered an icebox from Russia for $7,200,000, which was at that time an exorbitant amount of money. But when they did that, they called it Seward's folly, that Seward would buy Alaska from the Russians. But Seward felt compelled to buy Alaska from the Russians because the Russians wanted to dump it. They want, didn't want their interest in North America anymore. They wanted the cash. And they wanted to be paid back in particular for putting Russian ships off the coast of California and Russian ships off the coast of New York during the Civil War to prevent Britain from openly in interfering in the Civil War in the United States. Now, when you compare what happened in the Civil War in the United States to what happened in the war in South Africa, there was no one to prevent the Brits from landing in South Africa. And as a consequence, the, all of the work of the Boers in South Africa um, appears to have been for naught. All the wealth building and the civilization building that took place there was undercut by the fact that uh, the Brits, there was no one to stop the Brits from arriving there and slaughtering the Boers and putting uh, some 22,000 women and children in concentration camps where most of them died. So uh, you can see that the Russians did the United States a very large favor in keeping the Brits away from the United States during the Civil War. And we repaid them by purchasing Alaska from them for $7,200,000 in 1867. Well, my parents were of the sort that wanted to have, um, you know, pioneering. My mother uh, had grown up and had lived her entire life in Mendocino County, California, and where, quite frankly, nothing goes on. But, uh, you know, at the end of the harvest, they pick uh, uh, walnuts and, uh, and pick grapes, and that's about it for the year, and pears. She used to work picking pears, but she was a musician and brought life to that community. And so her and my father decided they wanted to pioneer in Alaska. And so we came here to live. And as we came here to live, uh, 
you know, I was pursuing music and, uh, you know, I was, I used to be a rock and roller. I played a lot of rock and roll. I toured out of Atlanta and I played with a lot of, um, acts that were very predominant back in those days. Uh, but when I turned 20 years old, I just got tired of it. And, uh, quite frankly, I was just bored with the stereotypical guitar playing. It bored me to tears. And I got tired of musicians, uh, you know, not wanting to practice and so forth. And so I decided I want to go on my own and I want to be able to play on my own strength. And so I literally cut the strings off my guitar, took all the guts off, put them in a cardboard box and put my guitar up on a shelf. And I flew home and I started practicing the piano and I practiced the piano for almost eight hours a day, seven days a week for almost eight years. And as a result of this you know, push towards piano performance, which by the way, you know, the, the truth is, is that I'm a bass player turned guitar player turned piano player. I mean, that's really the truth of it. And once you're a bass player, you know, you, you get very strong hands that uh, do not lumber well over the top of a keyboard. So it took me a long time to realize that I was never going to be a concert artist. Although I did many, many concerts, um, after I graduated, I did, I don't know, I think 25 concerts and they were usually about three hours long and I would play quite a few significant pieces. I mean, I played a concert when I graduated law school, for instance, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Uh, so at the end of my third year, I played a concert and I played, uh, I presented um, the Rachmaninoff second piano sonata, uh, the Liszt Funerai. I played the Malaguena. I played three Rachmaninoff etudes, three Chopin etudes. Uh, opened up with the, um, uh, not the Scriabin, opened up with the, uh, uh, I'll have to think of it, got to think of his name now. Uh, a beautiful little uh, Baroque piece. Anyway, his name will have to come to me. But uh, anyway, and then I finished the concert with the Brahms Handel Variations. And this was, this was how I graduated law school. So during that period of time when I was practicing law, I did a lot of piano concerts and I wrote a lot of original music for piano solo. And uh, I had a number of students that were excelling and doing very well. And, uh, but Yah continued to show me something, right? And he was showing something over and over again that he was going to take the tools in my toolkit and he was going to use them for his glory. And this is something that was going to happen. Well, in Alaska, before I left for law school, uh, you know, we had this thing called glasnost and perestroika occur in uh, Russia. And when this happened, uh, a piano, a pianist from Moscow, uh, essentially left Moscow and came to Alaska. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell you this story just because for the fun of it, uh, there was a, a fellow here who was a brilliant engineer and he had developed a drill bit that was very unique for the oil industry in Prudhoe Bay. And this drill bit was extremely effective and became very popular and he made a ton of money on this drill bit. Well, when he did, he was a musician at heart and he loved opera and he loved piano music in particular. So he had built himself a large warehouse and he began to sponsor the Anchorage Opera Company at his warehouse. And in his personal office, he had purchased a nine foot Steinway 
And when he went to buy the Steinway, he was talking with the builders in New York. And one of the builders said, well, I can build you a better piano than that. And the guy's name was Falcone. And so he talked to Falcone and he had Falcone build him an, uh, an instrument that Falcone believed would be superior to the Steinway. So this fellow in his office had two nine foot grand pianos facing his desk. And then he had a $120,000 stereo system behind it. And so he would be listening to the, the piano work of various uh, composers, namely uh, uh, Ashkenazi, who he used to listen to quite a bit, who was a great Russian performer. But Ashkenazi had a classmate at Moscow whose name was Svetlana Velichka. And Svetlana Velichka, she came to uh, Alaska under the auspices of this fellow. And he said, look, I want you to come here and I want you to play and blah, blah, blah. And he says, I'm going to sponsor you as a university professor at UAA uh, so that you can get your visa and so that you can end up getting, you know, ultimately American citizenship, uh, which she did obtain. So he flies her in for the purposes of having her sit at one of the pianos and he would put on a recording of uh, Ashkenazi or maybe Andre Previn or uh, some other pianist and he would play the recording of them playing and then he would have Svieta play the, play the piano herself and play it live, same pieces. Well, Svieta was an absolutely brilliant pianist. I mean, of the highest caliber. I mean, absolutely of the highest caliber. I mean, she was of the, the, the level of pianist of Rosalina Levine, who led the piano department at Juilliard for many, many years. Uh, she was she had uh, she was the only pianist in Russian history to have graduated from the Tchaikovsky Conservatory in Moscow and be offered a teaching position immediately upon graduation. And you have to remember that Rachmaninoff and Skriabin both graduated from that conservatory. So anyway, I heard Svieta was in town. And I thought to myself, I have to come and study with her. You know, so I would call her, I need to come and study with you. She wouldn't call me back because I was speaking English and she only spoke Russian. And so I called and called and called. And finally, after a year, she took my call because she could understand English enough at that point to understand what I was saying. And she said, yes, come over. I want to hear you play. So I remember walking into her studio and she had a seven foot kawaii at the back of the studio. This was in North Mountain View, for heaven's sakes. But I walked in and she had this seven foot kawaii in the back of the studio. And as soon as I walked in the door, she took one finger and she went, ping, with the fourth finger of the right hand, ping. And I heard this tone come off the piano and it was like, how did you do that? That was just glorious. How did you do that? And so we talked and she began to show me, she unleashed me as a pianist because I was trapped in a French technique uh, from a former teacher that used to study with Alfred Cortot. And my technique was uh, too brutal. It was uh, too much force uh, and too much tension in the arms, too much tension in the wrists and so on. And she said, look, you have all the technique in the world. You just have to let go and play it. And so she, if, you know, the, the, uh, the last 10% I needed to become a real pianist, she gave me, and she gave it to me in a very short period of time. And so we talked and I really thought the world of her, that she was such a great pianist. And she would, she was telling me, well, look, well, in fact, she invited her good friend, Victor Boonen, who was still teaching at the Moscow Conservatory, uh, to come and hear me play in Anchorage. 
uh, to hear me play uh, the Rachmaninoff. And Victor Bonin was, uh, you know, the head of the department there in Moscow. And he had very constructive, you know, the Russians don't mess around when they come to instruction. You either can or you can't. And there's no talking, but there's no, you know, finessing it. And uh, so he had very critically good things to say about the technique. And I began to learn many things. And of course, I was invited at this point to go to Moscow and to stay at Svieta's apartment while she was living in Alaska. She said, I still have my apartment in Moscow. You can stay in my apartment. And I think, well, I'm not going to Moscow. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And then forget it. I can't speak Russian. You know, you can speak Russian. I can't. But uh, at any rate, so, and then I was invited to tour, actually, to tour in Eastern Russia. And we were going to tour uh, starting in Vladivostok. At this time, Alaska Airlines had opened up the doors and was flying into Vladivostok and Magadan and was flying into Ohotsk. Uh, and I believe Yakutsk, there were, I think, four cities they were flying into. But they couldn't talk the Russians into fixing the runway or providing them with clean jet fuel when they landed. So it only went on for a few years, and then Alaska Airlines terminated the project. But during that period of time, many Alaskans were in and out of Russia continually. But not me. And so here I am walking around in this church just a few years later, and here's this mission to Moscow. And behind the mission to, to Russia, it says, what part of go don't you understand? And I looked at that and started laughing. When I started laughing, the fellow who led that mission group, he said, oh yeah, I know you're going to Russia with us. I said, I am, I, it never even occurred to me. And at this time I was still afraid of flying. And so he says, yeah, come on, let's go. And so I joined up with the group. And we went to Russia. And when we went to Russia, you know, I mean, I was just shocked. You know, I got off the plane there at Chermetyevo in Moscow. And I'm looking around going, okay, well, this is an interesting place. And of course, we spent a little time in Moscow at the Rocio Hotel there on the, the Red Square. And so the very first day we were there, I told the team, look, we're in Moscow. I said, uh, I have to get to uh, the Moscow Conservatory. Uh, well, we're not going there, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, I'm going there, whether you guys are not, you know. So uh, finally, I talked to uh, a tour guide that was taking us through the Kremlin. And I said, how do you get, how do I get to the Moscow Conservatory? He says, you see the building right over here on the other side of the Moroshnaya Polosian. I said, yeah, I see it. He says, just take the Bolshaya and the Kiba Ulitsa and take that down until you come to the statue of Tchaikovsky and you will be there. So I said, I'm going. So Three of my friends said, well, we're going with you then. And uh, so we went, uh, actually, there was four of them. Yeah, so there was a total of five of us. And so we walked down the Bolshoi and the Kiva Ulitsa, and we came up to the statue of Tchaikovsky. And uh, I, I was like, okay, let's go in. And my interpreter, Dima, is like, don't talk to the police. Don't talk to the police. It's just going to mean money. Don't talk. I said, let's go. Come on, let's go ask him. And uh, so I asked the police, can, can we come in here? Oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So we're walking along, walking through the hallways. And I said, well, I'm wondering if we look through here and I wonder where this is, you know, we're, we're kind of cruising along. And about that time, these two double doors broke, yeah, broke up, uh, break open. Who's speaking English out here? I said, it's me, I'm speaking English out here, you know. And so I talked with this woman, she was a cello teacher. And I started speaking to her about Svieta Velichko. 
I said, Svieta, yeah, she is my teacher. And, and she said, oh, I know Svieta, she plays so beautifully. And then she says to me, oh, my daughter is studying at, at North Texas State. <laughs> you know, studying music at North Texas State. Okay, hallelujah. So we found, we went, went downstairs to our favorite coffee shop, Cafe Mania. And our mission work in Russia began. So we would then go down to the Vauxhall, or the Kurskaya Vauxhall, the train station. We would take the, the train down to Kursk. You know, Kursk is a city near the Ukrainian border. And we get to Kursk to find a town that is still trapped in the Soviet Union. And what I mean by that is that uh, there was a Soviet level of poverty uh, in the city. And you remember that Russia went through three periods of deprivation following the collapse of the Soviet Union, where people were starving to death. At this time, the average lifespan for a man was 52 years and a woman was 63. And so these, the lifespan, life expectancy had collapsed following the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, you know, the people lived in, you know, basically concrete apartment buildings that were just tipped up and, you know, there was no real landscaping anywhere. And it was just kind of, you could see it was like, okay, we're going to survive. All of the apartment buildings in Korsk are fed by the same nuclear power plant. So there's gigantic, huge hot water pipes that come off the nuclear plant and run through the whole city. And so the apartments in the winter, they don't have a thermostat. You know, if, if your apartment's too warm, open the window. Uh, and so anyway, but this isn't the main thing. What happened to me there in Korsk was that I was overtaken by the Ruach HaKodesh. Now, this had nothing to do really with uh, the people that were there or uh, anything was really going on in the mission. You could go on the mission and not experience any of this, but that's not what happened with me. What happened with me was that I was overwhelmed with the Ruach HaKodesh. And uh, I could not believe how overwhelmed I was, quite frankly. I, I was just, I was in, um, the best way to put it was, I was just, I was the happiest I had ever been in my entire life. I was just, I couldn't believe what Yah was doing with me. And so we talked and I met uh, Yuri Mikhailovich and his family, a, a fantastic family of people. And uh, and at this time, I think I knew, you know, two Russian words, you know, das vidanya, you know. And so at any rate, <laughs> We're having to speak in Russian when we go into various places and stores and stuff, be able to communicate to understand what they're saying. And I wanted to preach. I knew I was going to be coming back and I wanted to teach in Russian. So I was praying for Yah to give me scriptures that I could preach in Russian. And so the scriptures that he gave me the following year uh, were very interesting Russian scriptures. And, and I, I learned these and I wanted to deliver these to the Russian people to speak from my heart concerning scripture. So one of these, of course, was And this is, come to me, all ye who are weary and burdened, and I will give rest to your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
And then, of course, the passage that I did eventually teach on in Russia, which is from the Gospel of John. It is for this reason I was born, and this reason I came to the earth, to testify to the truth. All those who are of the truth hear my voice. Now, from this provision, and again, I was once again the following year, completely encamped with the Ruach HaKodesh, and Yuri Makadovich tells me, he says, you know, Stephen, you need to go to the nation of Georgia. And I said, Yuri, what do I know of Georgia? I don't know Georgia. Don't know anything about it. Don't care to go. Don't want to know. He says, he says you speak Russian like a Georgian and you look like a Georgian. Go to Georgia. So this came upon my heart. And of course, you know, we made yet another trip into Russia that year. We went down to the Caucasus Mountains, into the Kafkas. And we went to uh, Nalchik, Kabardino Balkaria, uh, and uh, Kabardino Balkaria, and of course, across the top of the Caucasus. And that was a very dangerous mission. We had no idea how dangerous it was. When we got to the airport, um, Pastor Pavlov, he comes to me and he says, Stephen, he says, when we walk outside the airport here, I want you to immediately get into the van and sit on the floor. Do not sit on the seat. Uh, we're going to go to this compound and I don't want anybody to see you in the city. And so we did, and we were locked up in a compound for four days uh, in order to get registered in the city. And only then could we go out and even talk to anybody. And uh, the hostility towards Americans was very deep in that neck of the woods, very deep indeed. They didn't want to see Americans, talk to Americans, deal with Americans, transact with Americans, nothing. Um, Anyway, so here now I'm being driven by two things. I'm being driven by the Ruach HaKodesh to do mission work inside of Eastern Europe. And I'm also being driven by the Ruach HaKodesh to speak about the truth. It is for this reason I came to the earth, to testify to the truth. And Pilate says, Shto yest istana. What is truth? What are you talking about? What is truth? So when I came home, I began teaching on the truth project. And I was teaching on uh, fundamental human rights predicated upon the Ten Commandments. So when we did finally fly into Georgia, into Belize, we were some of the first missionaries in Belize. And uh, it was a very difficult place, very difficult time. Georgia was the poorest of all nations of the former Soviet blocks. And we flew in and elected to live with the believers who were living in very difficult circumstances for the most part. And, uh, and here we saw many, many miracles, many, many, many miracles on the very first trip. It was remarkable what had happened. I'm I'm not going to go into all of those here for purposes of this testimony. Well, I will. Let me just, since since we're taping this, you know, who knows? I might not be alive tomorrow. So let's give me my, let's give the testimony today. So when we entered into Belize, we came into Georgia on the strength of a handful of emails. Uh, we had been introduced to a pastor in Georgia named Zali Tikeshvili, 
And Azali was an evangelical pastor who was suffering from persecution at the time. He'd been on the run for two years. The Orthodox Church had tried to kill him. Uh, he had been beaten up, badly beaten up, kicked over a hundred times, had his Bibles burned, um, materials burned in his church, and he had been scattered. And uh, so what was left of his church was meeting in his uh, living room where they were, where everyone would gather because they had to gather privately and not in the public square. And so this was the condition. And we didn't know this when we went there. We Zali wrote me back and said, Stephen, if you're going to come, come, come now, come later, but come. Okay. So it took us several months to put together the mission team. We had a mission team of nine people, four of whom were 18 years old. And I didn't know it at the time, but we had put together a group of singers. I thought we were just putting together a mission team, an exploratory team, but yeah, I had something else in mind. And so one of the guys on the team, Zach, had just won the Lionel Hampton Jazz Vocalist Competition for the second year in a row. And so I wrote the I wrote the U.S. Embassy because I wanted the embassy to know we were coming into Georgia. So I wrote the embassy and I said, we're coming into Georgia. Oh, and by the way, we also, you know, I've got a little jazz. We can present some jazz for the ambassador if he's interested. And Rowena writes back to me and says, the ambassador hates jazz. So don't think about playing any jazz for the ambassador. But if you want, you can bring a couple of bottles of Tabasco sauce. That's the only thing you can't get here. And so we thought, okay, all right, that's great. She says, but if you're interested in doing music, we can set you up to do a performance at the uh, Atvladiani Museum in downtown Belize. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds great. Well, let's do it. She says, well, before you do that, we have to have a music resume. I have a music resume. What are you talking about? Well, she puts me over to this Georgian gal that worked for her. And this Georgian gal was very obnoxious because, of course, the Georgians are extremely talented. And they're great musicians and they're great dancers and they're great singers. They're very culturally oriented and very talented and very proud of their talent. And she says, well, this is who we have going here. Who are you? So I sent her my music resume. And when I sent her my music resume, I sent it also to Zali. And Zali, and this was on a Friday night, and we're leaving Sunday. And Zali says, um, well, Stephen, this changes everything. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Isn't that the changes everything? I said, okay, all right. So we arrived in Georgia. And when we arrived in Georgia, we spent the first night staying at the Sheridan Hotel. Then we were going to be with Believers the rest of the time we were there. And so we're staying at the Sheridan Hotel, and I'm talking with Mark and with uh, Dustin. We're standing on the far side of the lobby. And we look at this woman crossing the lobby. And I said, well, that's an American. And so she comes up. The ambassador was having a function in that hotel that night. And she comes up and she says, um, yeah, what are you guys doing here? I said, well, what are you doing here? She said, well, I came here for the wine. What are you doing here? And I told her, I said, well, I'm getting ready to talk in a church tomorrow morning. And she says, well, what are you going to talk about? And so I proceeded to tell her of my discussion, which was I was going to be talking about the foundation of human rights found in the Ten Commandments. And she said, oh, well, if that's what you're going to talk about, you need to talk to my boss. I said, well, who's your boss? Well, that's Tony Wright. He's the head of human rights issues for the nation of Georgia with the American embassy. See you on Monday. 
So I gave the speech to, to the church on Sunday morning, and I gave it again to the ambassador and Tony Wright on Monday morning. And Monday afternoon, I gave it to what was essentially the attorney general of the uh, state of Georgia. And as I'm giving the discourse to the attorney general of the state of Georgia, two other fellows walked in, and these were two orthodox monks. And they sat down at the table. I was very intimidated, but nonetheless, I delivered my speech. I said, I'm not here to talk to you about UN rights. I'm not here to talk to you about the Declaration of Independence or human rights found under the US Constitution. I'm here to talk to you about the human rights found in the Ten Commandments. And I explained it to them. And they were both, they had their mouths, they had their chins on their chest. They couldn't believe what I was saying. But nonetheless, one of these monks uh, who was um, Basil Kovikidzia was the head of juridical issues for the Georgian Orthodox Church and an archpriest in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And he, he was fluent in five languages, by the way, and he'd been published in every major publication in Europe. And he came forward with an article expressing the idea that there was enough religious room to allow the evangelical church to become registered in Georgia. And so as a result of this conversation and this understanding, Zali's church actually became the first church to be registered in a, in a different denomination other than the Baptist Union or the Pentecostal Union in the former Soviet Union in, since the creation of the Soviet Union. So, and in addition to that, Zali didn't, just didn't go on to get registered in the church. But two weeks after we left Georgia, George Bush was coming into Georgia to speak. And Laura Bush's team came into Belize, and the person at the embassy taking care of her team was Tony Wright. And Tony Wright had the opportunity to sit down with Laura Bush's team and talk to them about the expectation of human rights in Georgia predicated upon the Ten Commandments. So when George Bush got up in what they called Freedom Squares for Bordenopolosad, in downtown Belize, up the Rustavelli Street, he spoke in front of 350,000 Georgians, and he says, I know you have stood up the test of time to stand for your God-given rights. And when he said that, the roar of 350,000 people went up in the middle of that square. Okay. So, and who was sitting on the booth with George Bush, on the stand with George Bush? If it wasn't Zali Takeshilishvili. So we saw many, many miracles happen in Georgia uh, during that period of time. And these miracles were something that were taking place at the hands of Yad, not at the hands of me in any respect. However, I think on my last trip into Georgia, I ended up getting poisoned and uh, coming back on the plane. And I had to spend time in uh, the uh, in a hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. When we got back, we got back to Washington, D.C. But nonetheless, so the Ruach had me on a double course. One course was pursuing the teaching of the truth. And the other course was doing mission work in Eastern Europe at the behest of the Ruach HaKodesh. And I just want to say at this juncture, I made many friends in Georgia and my heart still uh, cares for them deeply. If we're talking about uh, Bato, and uh, my friend uh, Gennady Romanadze in the Batumi and uh, in, in Olegi over at the Pentecostal Union. 
and Zalit Keshilishvili, and so on and so forth. These brethren were great people, and we did what we could at the time with the abilities that we had, which were meager, but they were what they were, and we did what we could do. And so blessings to you, brothers. Now, so when I come back to the States, guess what? The pursuit of the truth is going to reveal something. And the pursuit of the truth began with me continuing to read and to expand the literature. And as I'm reading the literature, uh, we're discovering one thing that becomes very, very clear. And that is the teaching on the Shabbat. Now, there was a fellow uh, who was the pastor of this church that we were going to at that time. And he had a son, and his son's name was Michael. And Michael was emerging as a truly gifted teacher in the Ruach. And so Michael was given license to start a youth service, if you will, on Saturday evening. And Michael Ishmael, that was his name. And he began to teach and he did a five-part series on the Shabbat. And I'm listening to this teaching on the Shabbat, and it was just overwhelming. I mean, I'm reading, reading this, and I'm hearing this, and the teaching about the Shabbat, the Shabbat, the Shabbat. Quite incredible, and became very, very obvious to me that this was something uh, very important in the, in the uh, teaching of the scriptures. And so as time moved on, I was intending on returning uh, to mission work, but we were going to do mission work in Greece and uh, in Athens and in uh, Saloniki in, uh, in order to uh, deal with what was happening there. And, and we, would, we did that, some of that mission work, addressing the refugee crisis in downtown Athens. We worked with a mission group called the uh, Athens Rescue Center, the ARC. And uh, that also was a, an incredible blessing to me. But the year I intended to return to Greece for that purpose, well, a friend of mine says, well, you're not going to Greece this year. You're going to Israel with me. And I'm thinking, why? What are you talking about? I'm going to Israel with you. You know, uh, okay, all right. I guess I'll put off the trip to Greece because I was trying to work through some a German mission group out of uh, Stuttgart. But they wouldn't, they wouldn't return my calls, you know, to get into Thessaloniki for purposes of mission work. So I ended up going to Jerusalem. And when I, when I went to Jerusalem, uh, again, once again, the, the Ruach HaKodesh kind of took possession of me. And I'll share that with you too. That uh, when I flew into Jerusalem, we had a long flight. And we got to a Ben-Gurion. It's only a 35-mile hop from Ben-Gurion up to Jerusalem. And we were staying at the Dan Panorama in uh, Jerusalem. And I walked in the door and the team was sitting there having dinner. So I sat down, I had a cup of coffee, I had some food, and uh, Peggy looked at me and she said, you know, uh, Stephen, we want to hear you prophesy at the piano. And I said, you know, well, that's great, but I don't do that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, you do. I said, well, uh, no, I don't. And Pastor Joey was like, yeah, come on, you prophesy at the piano, we'll interpret. So I said, okay, fine. You know, so we go around the corner, we find this grand piano, and I start playing and once the desk heard that I could play the piano, they were okay with me playing. So I'm playing, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm thinking Zechariah 13, you know, here's the prophecy for this place, gloom and doom. 
And Yah keeps taking it out of my hand and taking it out of my hand and taking it out of my hand. And pretty soon there's this glorious rain that is coming down in D flat major, you know, over a D flat uh, alternate uh, alternative chord. It's a D flat major seven with a sharp four. Anyway, I'm playing this stuff and this stuff is just raining down and just so beautiful. And finally, I just had to stop playing. I had to completely stop. And, and Joey and Peggy were out there interpreting all this. And Yah speaks to me quietly in my, own, in my own heart. And he says, you know, Stephen, he says, you have greatly underestimated the love I have for this place and these people. Now, this was in the first hour that I was in Jerusalem, the first hour. And so from this point, you know, I would return to Israel in, in 2010, 2011, 2012. And Suddenly, you know, and, and and here in 2011, uh, Brad Huckins and I are walking along the streets in old in old in the old city, and uh, <laughs> it's the kind of thing that happened, right? We're walking along the streets, and we come we come onto this linen store, and I hear people in there talking in English, you know. So I walk in the door. Who's speaking English here? You know, I should have said, "Why are you all standing around?" You know, but I didn't say that. I, I think that I. Who's speaking English here? Well, there were two Orthodox guys sitting there at the counter and the fellow who owned the store who was making linen tleeds and linen kippahs and so maybe it was, a, it was a loom he had going there. And so these guys, well, who are you? Blah, blah, blah. Well, the next thing, you know, we start talking and these guys have had a ton of questions. And you know me, I'm the guy who's answering the questions. So here we, it was about, I don't know, three and a half hours later, the shop owner comes back in. Can I have my store back now? Can you guys leave? Can I have my store back? And we had talked for, I don't know, three and a half hours. We finally left, you know. And from here, we walked over to the tomb of David. Now, this was a very interesting circumstance because at the tomb of David, we walked into the tomb of David. There was no one there. And except there was this little tiny Ashkenazi rabbi who was about four foot 11. And this Sephardi rabbi, the Spanish fellow standing there. And I walk in and I said, yeah, yeah, what's going on? And they said, well, you know, do you want to pray? And I said, well, okay, yeah, sure. Let's pray. So this, uh, this, this little Ashkenazi guy, he's like, he couldn't speak a word of English and I couldn't speak a word of Hebrew, but he starts looking at me. He says, okay, I want you to repeat after me. And I said, okay, all right. And so he begins with the Shema, you know, and, and, and remember, he's only speaking to me in Hebrew, but I'm understanding him. And he says, uh, Shema Yisrael. And I came back and I said, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Echad. And when I said that, the Sephardi guy just goes, what is this? You know, and, well, and even the little Ashkenazi guy, he just keeps on pushing. And so we proceeded to uh, pray the entirety of that passage out of Deuteronomy with the Shema. Right here in the in the uh, in the in the tomb of David, and so from this point, both of those uh, rabbis said, "Well, we haven't seen anything like this." And Brad and I said, "Well, we're going to have to leave." So you know, we got out of there, we left, and but this began kind of a completely different change in my life now because I began to see, and we began to talk with the we began to talk with many of the Orthodox. Well, what is this? What are you talking about? You start talking about Tehillim. Well, we're talking about, you call it the book of Psalms. We call it Tehillim. Well, what do you call Proverbs? We call it Mishli. 
oh, okay, so I'm beginning to read through the Tanakh and seeing what's going on with the, with the Hebrew words and seeing what's there. And then, you, of course, you see the overwhelming tide of the evidence of this history in, in Yerushalayim. And, you know, we visited the synagogue in Hebron. We visited the synagogue in, uh, at Marat Machpelah. We, we then it, uh, visited the synagogues in the old city, uh, the, two, the three smaller ones. Uh, that were the Portuguese and Spanish, and I forget the other one, the third the three that were there. Uh, we went into many of the synagogues in the north of the country. And of course, we went to Kafir Nakum, Capernaum, and we, we took the Jesus boats out on the Sea of Galilee, and we did all that. And we went to Migdal, and we went up to Safed, and we went up to Kiryat Arba, and we went, uh, we ended up in Haifa for a long time. I, in fact, Yah had pointed out to me, look, Stephen, you need to go and you need to rebuke. He says, he told me, he said, before I ever went to Israel, he told me in my prayer journey, he says, Stephen, he says, I'm calling you to something. He says, I want you to measure 110 kilometers north, northwest of Jerusalem. So I did. And it put it into Haifa. He says, I'm calling you to lift up your staff against that temple and to rebuke it. I'm like, what temple? What are you talking about? I don't have the slightest idea what you're saying here, nothing. And so I started looking at it and I found that there was this temple that they call the Temple of Baha'i, but it really isn't the Temple of Baha'i, that is built on the top of the hill in Haifa, from where this from whence the city gets its name, Haifa, Baha'ifa. And uh, and he told me to go to that temple and rebuke it. Well, there was no chance of going to that temple because nobody ever wanted to go to Haifa. So we got there in Haifa in 2012 when we were going up to visit the church, the, the Kahila uh, HaKarmel. We were going up to visit this church and uh, we had to pull over to use the bathroom and we got lost. So David and Brad had taken off and they were gone. They went to the church and they never saw us again. So we're kind of wandering. Us, well, let's go into Haifa. So we went into Haifa and we went, in fact, to that very spot where Yah had told me to go to stand over the hill at, over the Baha'i Temple and to rebuke it. And so I did. Now, I did a whole long study on that temple. It's actually the temple of the Bab and not a Baha'i. The Bab was actually the 12th Imam, if you will, the Mahdi for Islam. And Islam missed it because he was preaching peace and not war. And at any rate, it was his temple. The Baha'i Temple is actually up in Akko, but it's another long story. However, in this trip, we determined the correct name for Yahweh Yosha. And we also determined in this trip, going down at Ein Kerem, which is the situs of the birth of John the Baptist, that there were Aleph Tavs contained in a proper translation of the New Testament. And so we began to look at three different versions of the New Testament in Hebrew to ascertain the Aleph Tavs. And we, at this point, made the decision that we were going to transliterate all of the names in Scripture uh, back to their Hebrew originals so that people who spoke English could understand them. So for me, what really made the difference in my life was when we began the Bible study in 2010. And in 2010, a group of people came to me who had been studying the Truth Project with me. And they said, we want to study the Bible with you. And I said, well, if you want to study the Bible with me, you have to keep in mind, we're going to be reading the Bible. We're not going to be reading uh, New Age pamphlets that have one verse in them while some guy sells you his hype pop psychology uh, program. That's not what's going to happen. 
It's going to be actually the reading of scripture. And they said, okay, let's do it. And well, when we did that, we had no idea what was going to happen because our study exploded. It absolutely exploded. It was the greatest night of the week. It was a study that was unbelievable. It was just, we were bouncing off the ceiling with excitement with everything we found. And as Greg said, you know, we started reading that section of the Bible where the gold pages were still stuck together, you know, that section. And as we did, we discovered so many, so many things. And so as a, as a consequence, one night we were at the Bible study and somebody had announced that they were going to be releasing a new politically neutralized Bible. And I thought, how do you, with a proper deference to scripture, release a politically neutralized Bible? How do you do that without changing the text? Well, they did it, you know, and so I looked at Brad and I said, you know, Brad, we should do something our, ourselves. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, let's do something that's just like extremely difficult to read. That's just impossible to read. And let's make it as difficult difficult and as accurate as we possibly can, transliterating and doing all this other stuff. He says, okay, yeah, I'm good. Let's do it. So we did. Now, when we first did it, we began publishing the text for our Bible study. And, you know, so we would publish like four books at a time. And initially they were in two books. And then we eventually got it into one book because we found a printer who could do it in one book. And they were paperback. And so we would kind of move one here and we'd move one here and we'd move one there and with the expectation that, you know, if our Bible study expanded, that we'd move, you know, so we would sell a few more. Well, we got to a point where we got to one edition and I couldn't get it home. It would be, it would be taken, people would buy it out of my hand before I could get home. I couldn't even keep my own book. And like, I don't have my own book right now, by the way. So, uh, so at any rate, well, we were in Jerusalem in 2012 during Sukkot. We were there with the four families. And we decided at that point that we were going to launch the Sefer Publishing Group. And we were going to publish under the name Sefer, Scroll, under the name Sefer. And uh, so it was, we scraped together our pennies and we put together what we could. And we printed our first run of the Sefer, which was as large as Thompson Shore, our printer, could handle. It was the largest book they could handle. They couldn't go another page. We had to fight to reduce the margins and to reduce the headers and the footers until we could get everything contained within those last eight pages. And so the first edition of the Sefer was born. And with that, then, I spent my time trying to explain what it was that we had done in the Sefer. And really, that's really been the course of action for the last 11 years now, has been explaining what we have done in the Sefer and why we did it. And as we do that, I discover more and more new things all the time. And so and in those new things, uh, I try to share what I can. And of course, you know, so we've had many, many videos that we have done uh, trying to explain the Sefer and the teaching that we have. And of course, you know, those, there's never been a charge for any of those. And in fact, we've never monetized those. We've just, you know, put them up on YouTube for free so that people could watch. We've gotten into some trouble and had some videos taken down. Uh, some of those videos that I did independently are uh, on the Sefer website. If you go to sefer.net and you go into resources, you'll find those videos. And then, of course, I began launching, uh, we began launching the Sabbath group. 
because I was routinely getting emails from people saying, I'm all alone in my walk. You know, I came to this understanding. I came to understand the name. I came to understand the truth of Torah. I came to understand the Shabbat. I came to understand the feasts. I came to understand that I need to come out of Babylon and I need to walk the narrow path. And as soon as I did, all my friends quit talking to me. My kids won't talk to me anymore. Uh, I've been shunned. I've been blown out of the community and I don't have anyone to talk to. So when I got those kinds of emails, I said, okay, well, I'm going to launch a Sabbath study and I'm going to launch a Sabbath study so that those people who are alone have someone to talk to, have someone to fellowship with. And so that they don't feel rejected, so that they know they're in a community. And since then, we have we've built many communities. We built communities on Telegram, and we built communities uh, in the various states and in different countries where people get to know each other and recognize they're not the only ones. For instance, last Friday night, we had a gal named Brooke and her family that are being ostracized by their community because they're not of their religion. And they live in Tennessee. They live in central Tennessee, just south of Nashville. And they're, they too are looking for community. They feel like they're all alone. And so, uh, and then of course, what took place was that we began to build a community in the United Kingdom. And there are such blessed brothers and sisters in the United Kingdom, whether it's Shane and Jessica Knock or uh, Stuart and Angela uh, Birch, who are very good friends of mine, um, Paul Berry, who is, uh, who is just, I mean, he's my blood brother in, uh, in the UK. And of course, I had a great love for Ross Brodstock, who died preempti uh, preemptively uh, following our trip. And of course, my, my Irish brothers, Frank Smith, who I love dearly, who's a great brother. And, uh, and, and he and his wife, Mary, uh, they were such great hosts for us in Ireland. It was terrific to meet him and Neil and, and uh, of course, Martina. And, uh, you know, so these people, the fellowship that we had in Britain, which includes, of course, John Hallam and, and, uh, and Malcolm as well, and Tony Wright and others who have been a instrumental part in helping those who are uh, becoming set apart, like Erna and Kim and others. And so the United Kingdom uh, Fellowship is an extremely important fellowship to me. I hope to be seeing those brothers and sisters again, hopefully for Sukkot this year. I'm hoping we're going to be able to do that. Yah's blessing by the by the will of Yahweh, as they say in the Ivrit. And of course, the fellowship in South Africa, which, you know, we just got back from South Africa on such a wonderful, wonderful trip. And uh, to, you know, meet the Boer community and the, and the, and the remnant of the Huguenots and, and others in South Africa who have a heart and a yearning to hear the name Yah and to hear the truth of scripture. And so anyway, this completes my, uh, my, my journey and my testimony. And just to say that I had no, none of this was on my uh, bucket list. None of this was in my view uh, at all in the 1990s. And uh, I had no idea that this is where I was gonna end up and that this would be what I would, would end up doing. It just never crossed my mind. But Yahweh has taken me because I said, here I am, Yah. Use me for the benefit of your kingdom in the way you see fit. And just to close my remarks now, I want to say this too. I feel the same way now, okay? 
that what Yah has in mind for me and, and Stephanie is on board, we are prepared to do. We are prepared to do. And so it, we know that the times coming are going to be hard, but they're going to be hard all over the world. So let us prepare to be strong in the strength of Yah, because this is what we have and we have nothing else. Remember, he is our strong tower. He is our fortress. By his name, we are saved. We are covered under his wings. He is our deliverer. He is our savior. He is our salvation. He is our freedom. All right, so I want to thank you. And I'm going to try to message James here that I have now completed my discussion. And I just want to let you know that uh, I'm very thankful for this opportunity to speak with you guys. And I hope you will come and catch me over at sephir.net or you can also catch me at Sephir Academy if you want to get into more intense discussion. We're currently discussing the Ten Commandments. We're discussing uh, the common law. We're discussing critical thinking. We're discussing ancient days and the history of scripture. We also have classes on piano from scratch, studying the Masoret, even the ancient Paleo-Hebrew that Shel Wagner teaches. And I have a class on understanding the Hebrew alphabet. These classes are all there and we're going to be doing a lot more classes. By the will of Yah, we will be doing more classes and have more educational materials available to you at sephiracademy.net, sephiracademy.net. You can catch me on Telegram, my channel, Stephen Pigeon. You can also catch me at Radio Free Alaska. And if you are a person who is interested in fellowshipping with other believers, come to the World Assembly of Yahweh, the way it's called, the World Assembly of Yahweh on Telegram. We have many members, and I have to tell you, I'm greatly heartened because the communication today on the way was so much different than last week. And it's been expression of love from the people one to another. And it's really quite exhilarating to see that we can actually come to this point between us, that we can find unity in the love of Yah. So I want to thank you, uh, brothers and sisters, for staying a part of the show. And uh, hopefully James is going to show up here and uh, take care of the end of this. If not, I may have to start singing. That is possible. That's a possibility. I could get into singing. And uh, so now... As we recap this, I want to, I'd like to say just a few more things, too, since Yah has seen fit that the Ruach HaKodesh has, not, has seen fit that I'm not done talking. Then let me talk a little bit about, uh, about some prophecy, a little bit about a prophetic voice, okay? There are things coming in the world now that are going to be a complete a paradigmatic shift, if you will. Uh, it's not going to be a great reset in accordance with the Nazi leadership coming out of the EU because the Nazi leadership in the EU is about to perish and they're going to perish precipitously. That is to be, that is to say it's going to happen quickly. And when it does, there's going to be many, many things that are going to take place in Europe that are going to be quite surprising. Of course, there's a revolution going on in France right now that revolution is going to continue until there is a complete change of government. But the government in Germany is going to fall entirely. And the people of Germany are going to regroup 
under a kind of Germanic understanding that existed during the times of uh, Goethe, uh, during the times of Beethoven, during the times of Bach, during the times of the great intellectuals in Germany who preceded the crotch-scratching ignorance of Adolf Hitler and Richard Wagner. And this is going to be an entirely new German people, an entirely new German idea. And they will come under the name of Yahweh, and they will come under the teaching of the scripture anew, walking away from the lawlessness of Martin Luther into the premises of lawful conduct in being obedient to Yah. And they will regroup as a people not as a nation state. They will not regroup as a nation state, not for many years, but they will regroup as a people. And as a people, they will confederate themselves with another group of people who are going to end up throwing off the chains of tyranny that sit over them right now. And that is the real Americans, the real Americans who will have also lost their nation will be joining with the real Germans who have lost their nation and what's left of the French who have lost their nation to confront and put an end to and put a final line to what is left of Western civilization. Now, as this begins to happen, bear in mind that we do have an obligation to our brothers and sisters in the wilderness who will be in the land south of Cush. And this obligation is to establish a nation of righteousness under the name of Yahweh. A nation not where a minority rules over a majority or a majority rules over a minority, but where Yah rules over all as not a respecter of persons, but he who created us with the breath of Adam. This is the prophecy, and this is the way it is. So I'm going to leave you with that. So I want to thank you, uh, brothers and sisters, and thank you for taking your time to listen to this old man pontificate and uh, uh, go on and on and on and on. I hope that you find this edifying. Baruch avinu olam laolam. Yevereke kayewa, vayispereka. Yeyiriyewa, panaveleke, vaykunike. Isayewa, panaveleke, lechem shalom. Bashem, yausha, hamashiach. Aman.